All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. You can find it on page 976 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. It's 976. Today we get to begin our journey in Calvin's favorite letter. This has been called the crown of Paul's writing, the divinest composition of man, and the queen of all epistles. Second, perhaps only to Paul's letter to the Romans, Ephesians actually packs every bit as much punch as Romans does, but in ten fewer chapters. The theological depth, the ethical richness, the gospel-centered beauty of this letter is matchless. And so it's only fitting that we follow up our sermon series where we unpack the vision of Redeemer Church by looking at and exploring Ephesians and seeing what it truly means to be united in Christ. In Christ, we are radically reconciled to God. This is no mere and light thing that God does on our behalf. In Christ, we are radically reconciled to one another. In addition to the vertical reconciliation that God has with man, there is also the horizontal effect of the gospel, of being united in Christ, that we are united together. That there is reconciliation that takes place there. And being united in Christ changes the way that we view the world. It changes the direction, the purpose, the implications for our lives. Now, just in terms of overview of Ephesians, first and foremost, Ephesians is a book about God and his saving work through Jesus Christ. This is not about you and me. It's about God. In a day in which many reject authority or they struggle to see God's purpose and his plans, his design through the world, Ephesians is a humbling reminder that God is sovereign. Despite our present circumstances, God is powerful. And God is personally and actively involved in the world we live in. Second, Ephesians is a book about our identity in Christ. In a day in which many neglect holiness or the need for faithful obedience, choosing rather to to live licentiously in the passions of the flesh, Ephesians paints this vivid picture of who we are, who we truly are, this dark and desperate state, apart in contrast to God's holiness, His glory, and His grace. It calls us away from our sin to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that all who are in Christ have received this new identity, this being united in Christ, that they might bear and reflect Christ's name to one another and to the world. Our being united in Christ compels us to transformation. It calls us to true and lasting change. In Ephesians, our identity in Christ radically changes our view of religion. We're no longer go it alone. It's no longer about what I do by myself. To be united in Christ means that we are united and reconciled not only to God, but also to one another. That we go through life together. That our growth and our maturity is not self-directed, but it is dependent upon one another. 
And nor is the Christian life simply about what we do, how I choose to live, the religious rituals that I decide to follow. It is not about moralism. It's not about legalistically following religious rituals and rules. It's about a change of heart, a change of desires. You see, our obedience to Christ not only requires us living together, pursuing Christ together, but living together in God's ever-present, heart-changing grace. Faithfulness to Christ is ultimately God-directed, God-empowered, God-fueled, and God-centered. It's not about our work, but His gracious work in us. It is God that saves. It's God that changes. It is God that gives us grace to walk in obedience. The ethical imperatives that we'll see in chapters 4 through 6 are grounded and fueled and finalized by the theological indicatives that we see in chapters 1 through 3. Here's what I mean by this. Okay, a lot of times we just look at what do I need to do? You know, we come, it's just all about what we need to do. Well, here's the deal. All the ethical responsibilities that we have are theological ethics. They are, what we do flows out of what we believe, right? And the first three chapters that we see is a whole lot of theology. But don't look at that as, as sort of this dichotomy, right? That there's theology in chapters 1 through 3, and then it's, ethics in chapters 4 through 6. No, it is, it is ethical theology in chapter 1 through 3, and it is, it is theological ethics in chapters 4 through 6. They're never divided. They're never separated. You see, right doctrine leads to right living. It ought to. It's meant to lead to right living. There is no right living apart from right doctrine. Right doctrine without right living is, is not right doctrine at all. You can't separate them out. Who we are, what we do, is ultimately defined by what we believe. And Ephesians presents them as this unity. And so even though it moves from more theology, more philosophy, more abstract to practical, never see those as divided. What we do in our lives is a direct result of understanding the truth about who we are in light of God and what, we, what He is doing in our lives. And to mistake or to misunderstand or to outright reject who we are in light of God will lead to ruin. Ruin of our lives, ruin of our souls. Ephesians answers the questions who we are and how we are to live in light of God. And so this morning, we're going to introduce this book by looking at Paul's greeting to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And as we summarize the whole of Ephesians in these two little verses, what I hope that you see, ultimately, is that we are called by God to live in His grace. We are called by God to live in His grace. So please read along with me. Is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, 
to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this simple greeting, Paul tells us three truths about the nature of this letter. Ephesians is an authoritative message. Ephesians is a holy message. And Ephesians is a gracious message. First, Ephesians is an authoritative message. Now, I'm a little curious before we kind of get into this. If you were to examine your life, what ultimately has authority? I mean, really. I'm not asking for church answers here. I'm asking if you examined your daily life, how you lived, what ultimately has the place of authority? What ultimately has the place of influence? What ultimately helps you to navigate and dictate your decisions? How you live? What is it that you regularly, immediately, respectfully submit yourselves to? I mean, would you say the government? I mean, would you say that you daily and gladly submit yourselves to it? Does it really have bearing on your daily life, or can you simply just kind of go through life ignoring it, having no idea of what's happening in the political world? So maybe, yeah, to a degree. What about the police? Well, well, I mean, some of us would say, yeah, but I mean, not everybody believes that. I mean, look at where we're sitting. Okay, look around the room. (laughs) Not everybody kind of holds the same view of of police that we do. What about teachers or professors or faculty or just that, that big anomaly called school? What kind of authority does that have in your life? How do you view your boss or your workplace? How do you view your parents? How do you view your peers? I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would see that our peers have a lot more influence in our lives. There are a lot more of authority in our lives than we want to give them credit for. Here's one that I'm really curious about. How do you view your elders? How do you view your church? How do you view God? I mean, would you say that your life is marked by daily, immediate, glad, and respectful submission to him? And just kind of as a follow-up here before we continue in on the text, what makes something authoritative in your life? I mean, think about it. What makes that thing, whatever that is that you follow, what makes it authoritative in your life? Is it a law? Is it a badge? Is it some official seal? Is it a a degree? Is it a pay grade or a position? Is it an ordination? Is it life experience or wisdom? What is it? What is it that makes something authoritative in your life? Now, you need to think about these questions. And you need to think about them carefully because here's the deal. We're always submitting to something. We are always following something. The question is ultimately what? What are we following? And why is it that we give that, whatever it is, authority in our lives? Now, Paul 
begins his letter by stating what makes his message authoritative. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is the reason he gives that you should read, that you should listen to, and you should heed his message. He's saying that this is God's message declared through the Apostle Paul, a chosen servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why you should listen. You need to understand something here, that this is not simply an eloquent sermon of a pious man that is calling us just to better moral living. This is not some lecture of a wise man to promote building a stronger society. This is not the propaganda of a right-wing extremist to brainwash you into joining a cult. This is the message of a man who's been chosen by God to serve Christ as one who is authorized and sent out to proclaim God's life-giving, soul-saving message. This is not Paul's message. This is God's message. God's gospel, that he is at work to save people to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder, how many of you remember the story of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9? I mean, Paul persecuted Christians. Paul hated Christians. Paul's goal in life at that period of time was to see Christians imprisoned. He saw them murdered. He hunted them. He breathed threats and murder against them himself. But as he was on his way to the city of Damascus with letters in his hands from the Jewish high priest to be able to go and capture Christians, Christ appeared to him in a blinding light. It was there that Christ saved him and sent him saying, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And what we see in Acts chapter 9 is by responding, by repenting of his sin and believing the gospel, Paul received the Holy Spirit, he was baptized, and then he began his appointed mission as an instrument of Christ to proclaim and to suffer for Christ's name. Paul is not some religious idealist. He's not some fanatic follower that tried to turn a man into God. Paul was chosen by the resurrected and living Lord Jesus Christ. He belonged to Christ. He was authorized and sent out by Christ to proclaim the name of Christ and not his own. This wasn't based on anything within him. No sense of merit, no sense of worthiness. Remember, he's a persecutor of the church. In fact, Paul saw it just the opposite. Paul considered himself the very least of all the saints, according to chapter 3, verse 8. Elsewhere in his letters, he calls himself the chief of sinners because he had persecuted the church. But nevertheless, this role was given to him, not by self-appointment, Paul did not authorize himself for this task. It was given to him by the will of God. 
God chose Paul. Paul's authority to write this letter to call us to respond to the gospel is a derived authority. Paul is an ambassador. Paul is a representative. Paul is an apostle, one who is sent out by Christ. And so this message, his message, is God's message. And it's not just for Paul. It's not just for the church in Ephesus. It's not just for the people of Paul's time period, Paul's day, but for all who God calls to himself. You see, the God who spoke, the God who had Paul deliver his message to the Ephesians is an unchanging God, an authoritative, universally sovereign God. His word does not change, not to Paul or to the Ephesians and not to us as well. His word is universally authoritative. Now this leads me back to the original set of questions that I asked about who is the authority in your life and what makes it authoritative. Because here's what Scripture says. Scripture says that there is one God who created all things. This God is holy He has nothing to do with sin. He is sinless. He is perfect. This God made all there is, and this God sustains all there is. You have life right now because this God, this creator God, sustains your life. God chose to do this not because he was lonely, not because he was needy, not because he needed love, but he made all there is in order to display his glory. He created so that his creation might enjoy him. The reason why we live, the reason why you are here, is to know and enjoy God. There's just a big problem, right? We didn't do that. Man decided it was better to rebel against God. We didn't like the idea of authority, and so we rejected God. We tried to live our lives without Him, as if this is my world. I'm God. I'm in control. I will set the pattern and the course for my life. I will not to submit to anything else. We have gladly and willfully made ourselves His enemies. And how do I know this? Well, ultimately, I know this because God told us, right? God gave us His Word. This is his story, his purpose, his plan revealed through prophets that we might know and understand God's will for our lives, that we might understand God's purpose in the world to redeem a people to himself, that they might glorify him. God is telling his story through the pages of Scripture. He has told us. But even more than that, I mean, we can look around the world. We can see creation. And it creates within us a sense of longing. Am I wrong? I mean, have have you not gone out and watched the sunrise? Have you not stood upon a mountain peak? Have you not stood upon the, the shore and looked out over all that was made and you thought a lot of yourself? No. In those moments, there's this longing within yourself to worship. You stand in awe 
and wonder. You marvel at all there is. And that creation points to something more. And you add to the fact that we all intrinsically know that we've done wrong. We all know that deep within us that there is some, some sense of right and wrong. And that we've gone against it. And that what we have done wrong is worthy of punishment. Now, I'm, and we experience shame for that, true shame for that. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the shame that you experienced because you made your mom sad. I mean real shame against some other standard that you were supposed to live by. It's a real sense of guilt. Also, if you faced any kind of pain or difficulty or loss in your life, maybe you've had those moments in, where in anger or sorrow you have shaken your fist at some notion that is God. Why did you do that? Why the worship and longing at creation? Why the heartfelt guilt over sin? Why this crying out to God, either for mercy or in anger, because things were difficult? Why? My friends, this is far more than, than mankind trying to create some God to explain the unexplainable. What we see in those moments are humble admonitions that there's a God who created us to have a relationship with Him. That there is something more. This God not only reveals Himself through His Word, through nature, through our conscience, but His character, His purposes and promises in the world, but God also tells us that He is working to right the wrong. That God is working to overturn the rebellion that is in our hearts, to change us. And he did this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life. A life that you and I can never live. A life of perfect submission to the will of God. And God gave, like, Jesus gave up that life by dying on a cross for sin. To pay the penalty for sin. To pay the penalty that your sin deserves. He rose from the grave. To show that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied and that God is in this process of recreating all there is. He is giving new life. He is creating a new humanity, a new people who were redeemed by His grace so that they might reflect Him, so that they might glorify His name. And not only does God own us then, by rights as our creator, right? If you made it, you own it. If you sustain it, if that exists because of your work, you own it. Not only does God own us by rights as our creator, but Christ has purchased the right to be our king with his own blood. If you are in Christ, you have doubly the authority in your life. Christ is your creator. Christ is your redeemer. But so often, even as Christians, we still want to play like we're the authority in our lives. We still try to live as if this is my world and I'm God. 
I want to interpret my world the way that I want to interpret it. I want to live the way that I want to live. I want to come to Scripture, and rather than studying it and let it say what it says, I want it to mean what I want it to mean. There are things that I don't like. I just want to ignore those things. I don't want to submit to those things. I want them to say what I want them to say. I want to create a God in my own image. I'm willing to obey God maybe in this area in my life, this one over here, but this one over here, yeah, I'm not ready to do that. I'm not willing to do that. And so I'm, I'm just going to ignore this area and pretend like everything's okay because I do this area. Everything's fine. Because here I am obeying over here. I'm just going to ignore this one over here. Like that makes them but okay. Or this one gets us a lot. I'll obey when the situation and the circumstance is just so. Right? When the conditions are right, I will obey. But if things are not going the way that I want them to go, if life is hard, if circumstances are difficult, if I am just overwhelmed emotionally by everything that's happened, I am going to shake my fist at God. And I somehow have a right to do it. Do you realize that Paul wrote this letter from prison? When you study the contents of this passage, this book of Ephesians, and you see this God-exalting authority that he, he praises God for God's universal sovereignty over every power, every dominion, and every authority. That includes the people that hold him in chains. And yet Paul praises God. And his faith is secure, even in prison. You know, it is one thing for us to say that we believe in the sovereignty of God. It is another thing to praise Him while we're in prison. It has that kind of impact on our lives. Or maybe it's this. Maybe, maybe I don't want to submit to the authority figures that God has placed in my life. I don't want that, uh, whether that be God's word or the government or police or my boss or the church or the elders or even godly wise older men and women to counsel and direct me. I don't want that. Here's what I want to do. I just want to look to my friends. I want them to be the locus of authority in my life. I want them to have influence over me. Or maybe I'll look to my parents. But the reality is I want to be the authority in my life. I want to do what I want to do. Is anything that I've said, is any of that resounding with you? Is any of that true with you? I think I caught everybody in this room, because I know I caught myself about 20 times. Who do you look to as authority in your life? Do you consider them to be godly influences, truly godly influences? And are they just like you? Same age, same socioeconomic status, same purpose, same direction. If that's the case, what do you think that that ultimately says about what you're trusting in? Do you reject the notion of authority altogether? Do you treat submission to God's word or God's established authorities as optional? I can take it or leave it. Or do you reluctantly or begrudgingly submit, 
But all the while, you backbite and slander those who God has placed in authority over you. You show respect or deference for others. Or maybe this, are you ruled by your emotions? This is one that catches us a lot, right? When the heat is on, you lash out against God's authority because in that moment, emotions are your God. Well, I have to tell you, Ephesians is going to challenge our notion of authority. Everything from doctrinal authority to the workplace and everything in between, Ephesians is going to challenge it all. But we need to be clear on this. This is God's authoritative message to us. To rail against anything we find within its contents is to rail against God. Anytime we fail to submit to anything that we see in the book of Ephesians is a failure to submit to God. Let's not excuse ourselves here. All of those who have been created and sustained by him, as those who have, and you are, this is all of us here, regardless whether you're a believer or not, if you have been created and sustained by God, you have no excuse to reject God's authority. But as those who have been redeemed by Christ, why would you want to? And so Ephesians is an authoritative message. Second, Ephesians is a holy message. Verse 1 continues, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, it's really easy for us to get hung up on that big word saints, right? I mean, what, what comes to mind when you hear that word saints? Are you thinking like super pious people who performed miracles and now have statues dedicated to them? Are you thinking about the veneration of relics or maybe in light of recent developments, white smoke versus black smoke and the appointing of the Roman Catholic Pope? We don't abide by that, by the way. That's not what this word means. The word saints means holy ones. In the New Testament, it is used of someone who has been set apart by God. Right? God's work in setting this person apart. When God sets them apart, they are a saint. They're considered a holy one. This is God's work and not their own. This word is used nine times in Ephesians alone to describe anyone who belongs to Christ. It's not simply the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers who are saints because chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 tell us that Christ gave and appointed those roles to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Maybe that's saying that these apostles and evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers aren't saints. I don't know. I'm kidding. anyone, anywhere, at any time, who's been set apart by God for faith in Jesus Christ is a saint. So what that means is that if you belong to Christ, you are saint. 
Now, before I say more about this, I want to address the issue of its recipients, okay? Perhaps in some, maybe all of your Bibles, there's this note saying that the words in Ephesus were missing from three of the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts, okay? So basically, that wasn't there. What do we do with that? How do we understand Ephesians if we don't know who the original audience was? Now, many people have taken that and then they've taken sort of the general nature of the letter that it's not written for really particular issues. It's not addressing particular people. It's just general and kind of universal in scope. They've taken that combined with the fact that in Ephesus is missing from a few manuscripts and they've kind of speculated on who the intended audience was. Some people believe that Ephesians was a circular letter written to the churches in or around the area of Ephesus. So it was written to a bunch of churches, sort of passed along to these different churches and kind of trickled its way down. But they're all around Ephesus, so hence the, the two words inserted in there in Ephesus. Okay, that's one. Some say that, it, well, it's really weird given the fact that Paul has spent so many times, so much time in in Ephesus, that he would write this general letter. So what must have happened is this. The church in in Ephesus has grown so much that Paul doesn't really know who's there and who's not anymore. There's so many believers. He doesn't want to address people specifically because he doesn't want to leave other people out. And so he just writes this general letter. It's meant for the Ephesians, but it's written generally to these believers that have, you know, this church has just grown so much. Others have suggested that due to the strange word order, now now take a look at this passage, right? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. If you take out in Ephesus, you have to the saints who are and are are faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's basically how the the Greek runs. That's a really weird order unless you change it to, to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus, but that's a little bit redundant. So people look at that and they're like, okay, this must be what happened. There's a fill in the blank right? To the saints who are blank, right? And so Tychicus, as he went around and he's distributing this letter to the different churches, he's filling in the blank, right? To the church in Laodicea. There you go. Here's, here's your letter from Paul. To the church in Ephesus. And here you go. Here's your letter from Paul, right? Just kind of fill in the blank. These are fine. Ultimately, given the predominance of Ephesus in the ancient world, I don't question this was primarily intended for the Ephesians, okay? I think that they're the primary audience, not that it could have been distributed out because we have Ephesians because it was distributed out, okay? Now, this is a bit of a excursus, I know, but here's why I bring it up. In most of Paul's letters, Paul is responding to very particular issues. He's addressing very particular people in very particular settings. And in order for us to rightly interpret and divide the word there, we have to be sure to carefully understand the historical context, what's going on, before we can rightly apply that passage. Okay? This is just hermeneutics 101. Right? Historical context. But in Ephesians, it deals with issues, but it deals with them generally. It's much more universal in scope. And if it's written to the saints, that includes the saints here at Redeemer Church. This is one of those few places in Scripture where it's actually okay hermeneutically to write yourself into the text. All right? Don't do that normally. 
but it's okay here. (laughs) Ephesians is every bit as relevant for us today as it was for the saints at Ephesus around 60 A.D. And I want that to speak to you. Because a lot of times we look at these, these letters, we think that they're too old, it has nothing to say to me. You can actually write your name into the blank. To the saints who are in Urbana, Illinois, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are at Redeemer Church and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let that speak to you. And praise God for his message. If you are in Christ, then you are a saint. We are his holy ones. We are his set-apart ones. This is God's work. This is God's work according to verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, God calls us holy. God calls us saints. God sets us apart for the purpose of making us holy. God calls us his saints, and yet we are called with his ever-present grace to put off sin in our lives. We are holy in Christ, and yet Paul says in chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, that worldliness and licentiousness is not the way that we learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Christ we are called holy. And we are called to be holy. Same is true for the second half. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. To be faithful in this verse doesn't mean those who are perfectly obedient to Christ. What this means is those who have faith in Christ. Faith that we are called to have. Faith that we are called to live by. But faith that nevertheless is a gift from God, according to chapter 2, verse 8, and according to chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We are called by God for faith in Christ, and we are called by God to be faithful in Christ. I hope you can see what's happening here. When God calls us, He saves us. He calls us holy. He calls us saints. He calls us faithful. And yet he calls us to be holy, to be sanctified, to be faithful. We are called to Christ. When we are united in him, we have a new identity. We're not the same. We are the saints. We are the holy ones. The Christian life is not about you trying to, by your own will and by your own effort, become like Christ, to become holy, to become saints, to become those who are faithful. No, the Christian life is about seeking to live within the reality of who we already are in Christ. And this changes everything in the way you look about the Christian life. 
This is what Paul means in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Meaning, you have already been called. You are already there. You are already a saint. You are already a holy one. Now live worthy of that calling. This is who you are. Not something that you're striving by your own effort to be. If you are in Christ, you have a new identity. So live in it. You know, for lack of a better example, it's kind of like the witness protection program. The program only proves itself true if you're willing to live within the new identity that's been given to you. You get this, right? The WPP does not work if they give you a facelift, they give you a new ID, they give you a new home, a new car, and then you go out and you hang out in all your old haunts. You go to your old neighborhood. You hang out with all your own posse and friends. I mean, what's going to happen if someone in the witness protection program does that? They get killed, right? You can understand that. In Christ, by the grace of God, we've been given a new identity. Therefore, we are to live in it. You see, being united in Christ changes everything. Nothing is the same. Everything changes. Paul uses this phrase in Christ or in him or in the Lord or in the beloved dozens and dozens of times in Ephesians alone to describe our new state positionally before God. All who have been saved by grace through faith are in Christ. They are in the sphere of Christ. There's a positional change that takes place there. You might live here in Urbana, but you are at the same time living in Christ. It's a new identity. That positional change affects every aspect of your life. It affects the way that you interact with and live within the sphere of Urbana. According to chapter 2, before salvation, we were dead in our sin like all of mankind. But when God saved us, he made us alive. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, notice all of those are past tense. Because Paul is describing the positional change that takes place there. You might still live in the sphere of this world, but your life is meant to be lived within the sphere of Christ. Being united in Christ changes the way you live. It changes the way you interact with the world. Another shoddy attempt at illustrating this would be like the boy in the plastic bubble. Or if that's too 1970s for you, think about an astronaut or a deep sea diver. The boy in the bubble, the astronaut, and the deep-sea diver, they can interact with and exist in the world around them. Whether that be the backyard or space or the seafloor. But their lives, their existence, is defined by and utterly dependent upon the suit that they wear. They live in constant reminder that their life comes from the sphere of that suit. And if they were to step outside of it, they would die. 
The boy in the bubble has no immune system. To live outside of his suit would mean that he would contract diseases or viruses. He would not be able to fight them. He would die. The astronaut would implode. The diver would be crushed. Just as branches must be connected to the vine or members of the body to the head, there is no nourishment. There is no wisdom. There is no growth. There is no life itself without it. To be united with Christ is more than saying some sinner's prayer. It's more than receiving baptism. It's more than a personal spiritual experience. It's more than observing religious rituals. It's more than a self-made profession of faith. The depth of this union is life itself. It is everything. To live in Christ is to be determined by Christ and not yourself. He shapes who we are. A person cannot be conscious of his identity in Christ and behave in ways that are totally out of keeping with Christ's character. It would be like the astronaut trying to walk on the moon outside of his spacesuit. When God saves us, he unites us in Christ. We are brought into the sphere of Christ. We are the saints, the holy ones, the faithful. And he calls us to live in light of that union that we have with Christ. We live in our new identity in him. That is what defines us. Is that the identity that you, li- you live in? Honestly. Is that where you find your identity? Or are you united with something else? If you need practical tools for measuring... This text provides. Living in our, in our identity in Christ, living united in Christ is measured by holiness, sanctification, faithfulness. And so you see, Ephesians is an authoritative message and it's a holy message. Third, Ephesians is a gracious message. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer of blessing for the Ephesians. Paul calls to the God who has graciously saved and brings them to peace by reconciling us through his Son so that God would continue to extend grace and peace to them. These two words not only describe God's initial work in salvation, but God's continual work in and among his people, grace and peace. Grace is unmerited favor that God has given to his people, not only to save them, but it's also God's present power, God's active work to strengthen and enable his people to live as he has called them to live. 
this word is used 12 times in Ephesians. And if you look it up, every time it is what God is doing for and in us. This is not something that you can earn. This is not something that you can pay back. It is entirely dependent upon God freely giving it. Now, Paul's prayer for continual grace to the Ephesians is huge. And here's why. So often we think about God's grace in the past tense. Right? God's grace is what he gave us at one point in our lives to bring us to a saving relationship with Christ. God's grace is what gets us in the door, but after that, the Christian life is up to us. It's about what I do. It's about my own effort. It's about my own work. It's about me being righteous before God. Grace was great back then, but now I'm on my own. But in this prayer, Paul points us to a greater reality. He's saying this, listen, you've got to understand, Christian life is all of grace. It's all of grace. God in His grace gives you the command. God in His grace saves you. God in His grace calls you to obey the commands now that you are in Christ. God in His grace strengthens you, enables you to obey the commands. And when you obey the commands, God in His grace rewards you for your obedience that He enabled you to do. And the result of that is you praise His glorious grace. It's all of grace. And yet how often do we fail to obey God because we think that we have to do it by our own power? You know, I I wonder, how different do you think your life would be if when faced with the command of God that you feel woefully inadequate to obey, that you move forward trusting that God would give you the grace to walk in it? Did you earnestly believe that God's power was present, enabling you to do what He has called you to do, rather than you're on your own? Paul prays that they would know and truly believe that God is graciously working, not just in the past, but in the present and for the future, so that they will become more like Christ, so that we will become more like Christ. God's grace is ever present. And then Paul adds to that peace. Now the peace of God is not a state of mind. The peace of God is not some peaceful, easy feeling that you can get so that you can know whether you're in the center of God's will. You know, so often people use this like in order to basically hold off any kind of criticism, to hold off any kind of counsel about a decision. No, 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 you don't understand. I have have peace about it. That's the way people try to use the peace of God. Right? This is the profound influence that the eagles have had on our lives. No, but the peace of God is God's work to reconcile us to himself. 
In our sin and our rebellion, we were at war with God. But he has made peace by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He has reconciled and restored us to himself. Though we didn't deserve it, though we were ungodly, though we hated him and were enemies of him, God reconciled us. He made peace through Jesus Christ. And regardless of our current circumstances or situation, no matter how desperate or dire they are, we have peace with God, and that is a sure and steady anchor for our souls. If we're going to get into what peace of God means in terms of feelings, it means this, that even if it is chaos around us, we can stand secure in that God has achieved peace for us by reconciling us to His Son, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if we feel like our world is falling apart. We can rest sure that is the peace that we have. Because God has done this work in us. And that is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And yet Paul prays that God would grant them more peace. Well, Paul, why? If, if that's already achieved, if that surely peace is past tense. I mean, because God did a work, we reconciled. What, what more is there to add? Well, because the peace of God not only brings reconciliation between God and man, but between man and man, between one another. In our sin and rebellion, we were not only at war with God, but we were at enmity with each other. That's what sin does. Sin divides. Sin separates. Sin closes off. Sin causes us to hide in shame and in guilt. We separate ourselves from one another. But the reconciling work of the cross removes all that. It destroys all that. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where we're going to get, we're going to recognize that this reconciliation that we have with one another in the cross, it destroys any and all social barriers. It removes any and all need to separate or to hide ourselves, to find our identity in anything else other than Christ. All of those things are removed, and there is Christ in its place, and that is more than enough. That is all we need. Anything that we might find our identity in that would cause us to separate has been brought to nothing in light of our union with Christ. Now I wonder, Are you professing to have peace with God while there is a war waging in your soul? A war between you and God or a war between you and someone else? Maybe even generally other types of people. Have you found peace and reconciliation with people who are different from you? Different race? different social status, different age, different interests than yourself? Are you able to look beyond all that and love them as a brother or sister in Christ because you've been loved by Christ and you're united in Christ and that's all that really matters to you? Or do you only talk to certain people when you come to church or when you're in gatherings? Or do you talk to people at all? Or do you separate yourself from them because you are not, they are not like you? Paul's prayer here is grounded in God's gracious peacemaking gospel. 
It is directed to the one who is actively involved in extending, even now, his work of grace and peace to his people to change their lives. We don't mean hypothetically or theoretically. We mean practically. It unites us together. The change ought to be real. It ought to be felt. It ought to be seen. Its benefit is not for those who will earn it by their own will or effort, but those who humbly receive it so that they might live in light of their true identity in Christ. You see, God is at the center of all of Ephesians. He's the center of all of Scripture. God is sovereign, and this is his authoritative word. He is working powerfully, even when circumstances would tell you the contrary. God calls us to live in holiness, in faithfulness, to reflect him to each other and to the world around us. We're called to live in light of that calling. And God gives us the grace and peace so that we might actually do that in every area of our lives. Friends, you have to understand that the Christian life is not about you. It is about Him. Just getting that in itself will change the way that you look at the world. We, in reality are simply called to live in his grace. That's it. If you are in Christ, you have been called to live in the grace of God. Ever-present, all-powerful, cosmos-reconciling grace of God. I'm excited about what Ephesians has in store for us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this reminder that this life is not ultimately about us, but about you. We thank you in your mercy and grace that you call us to yourself. This is an authoritative call. This is a call from the God of the universe from the God who redeems, to choose and to save, to sanctify, to glorify. You have called us to reflect who you are. Lord, I pray that we would have a deep and abiding recognition of your true identity, that we would know you so that we might reflect you well. God, give us a, a burning desire and passion within our lives to not find our identity in other things, but to really rest in our true identity, our one identity, that we are united in Christ. And may we recognize that your grace and mercy and peace is ever at work within us so that we might be changed to do it more and more. God, reveal to us the areas in our lives where where our profession is inconsistent with our lives. And may we repent of our sin and believe and reflect the gospel. May we trust in your ever-present grace in us to change, 
No matter how dire or hopeless our circumstance seems, we know that you are greater. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.